So last week, as I said, we started this new series that we're calling So What? And uh, we're talking about the, the message and the methods that, that Jesus used when he was on this earth. And last week we looked at Luke chapter 8 where Jesus introduces to us some very familiar language if you've grown up in, in, in and around the Christian faith. And it's this language of horticulture, right? This language of, of planting where we have Jesus himself as the sower, as the one who plants the seed, that he uses us as his instruments, as his, uh, as his tools. And then we have his word, which is the seed or the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, which is the seed that he plants into the hearts of people. And so we see man's heart is the soil. And we saw that it comes in all kinds of different conditions, the soil, man's heart. We have hard-packed hearts that don't want to receive the gospel. And so it, it hits and it bounces off because their hearts just aren't willing or ready to hear it and Satan or birds it says snatches the seed away from the hard soil we see that there's some soil that that seems to be ready at the top but underneath there's ledge there's rock and it just can't retain enough moisture and those are the the people who who get excited about the Lord right off the bat but they don't go deep and they prove that they weren't in fact a follower of Jesus we saw that there was there was soil that is thorny soil where the seed falls in the soil the thorns grow up with the seed and choke it out. We saw some of this language that Jesus introduces to us that the thorns would be things like the worldly pleasures and riches of this world and oftentimes they just choke it out and we then prove that we weren't a true follower uh, of Christ. And then we see that there's soil that's ready. It's soft, the weeds are gone, the rock is gone, there are no thorns, it's ready. God has prepared the hearts of these people so that they may come to know the Lord. The language continues on that then the, the, the tree, the plant would grow up into spiritual health and it would bear fruit and the fruit would be the giftings of the Holy Spirit. And so we see this language introduced to us in Christ in, in Luke chapter 8 and then also in the other synoptic gospels. And, and, and this is just wonderful language, very familiar to us, but I think the action or maybe we should say the inaction of most Christians in our world kind of communicates this idea, this, this attitude of, I don't care. I know what he called me to, but I don't care. Or, so what? It's not a big deal to me. And I don't think we intentionally say that, but I think our actions, our attitudes communicate that. So what? I don't care. And, and so we're doing this, this series this summer that we're taking the attitude, so what, and we're twisting it to the proper attitude, not S-O what, but S-O-W. What, what are we to be sowing? What is this gospel message? And what is the method that Jesus used in his sowing of, of the gospel? And, and so how are we going to sow it? What are we going to do? How's that going to look? And in other words, what are our methods on, on this earth to sow the seed of the gospel. And uh, we're going to, as I believe as we talk about the method, I think naturally the, the message is going to become more clear. And so that's what we're doing this summer. Should be a good time, and I think it's going to be very fruitful in our lives and in our church. And as Christians, let me give you this. This is important to kind of set the stage. As Christians, there are three ways that we can receive wisdom into our lives. And you may want to write these down. You may just get it, but I want you to hear this. There are three ways that we receive wisdom in our lives. First of all, we can receive wisdom from personal experience where we make mistakes and we learn from it or we just pick up wisdom in the real world as we go about our lives. Let me give you an example of this. Just this week, my wife Becky asked me the best question a woman could ever ask a man, and that is, Josh, what do you want to eat tonight? And I said, all right. And I said, I would love some 
fish. I was feeling fishy, and I said, I would love some fish. And so she goes and, and picks up some, some sole for dinner and cooks it up with a little lemon. Oh, it was excellent. So we had sole. It was so good, and, and it, the house was smelling fishy. I loved the good kind of fishy, I guess, right? And, and so she says, all right, guys, time to eat. So we all come together, and she puts this dish with the fish in it on the hot pads on our table, and the first thing she says to her boys, which would be Luca, Isaiah, and then me, I'm, I'm her boy too, the first thing she says is, listen, guys, the dish is really hot. I'm warning you, the dish is really hot. But despite the fact that she said the dish is really hot, Isaiah, our four-year-old, now four-year-old, he, uh, he gets up on his knees on the chair, and he's kind of like dangerously close to the dish, and he's being all goofy and kind of almost, you know, crawling up on the table. And she says, Isaiah, the dish is hot. You're going to burn yourself. And then I get up before we pray. I get up and go to the other room to get a couple things to bring back and, and before we pray and eat. And sure enough, while I'm in the other room, you know what I hear? Ah! It's Isaiah with like this piercing, terrifying shriek. And I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even have to guess. I knew exactly what had happened. He didn't listen to mom. He touched the, the dish. He got burnt. He's shrieking. It just, it's he was sobbing. It, was, it just made dinner, my wonderful fish dinner, miserable. He didn't listen. He didn't learn from us, but he did learn. He learned. He learned from personal experience. And I promise you, if you were there, the rest of the night he was like sobbing and crying and away from the dish over that meal. And, and he learned his lesson. And so obviously one great way to learn is from experience. It's a great way to learn. The next thing is, is, is the experience of others. We can learn from the experience of others. But I first want to give you why the experience of ourselves is, is limited. It's, it's insufficient at times. Here's why. Our, our experience is limited by our age. Our experience is limited by what, what have we gone through in life. Our experience is limited by our upbringing. So it, it's limited. It's not the the perfect means by which to learn. I mean, I would rather not get hit by a car and learn how to be a safe driver another way. So our experience obviously is limited. But the other one, the experience of, of others, I'm all for that, and here's why. I'm all for the experience of others because I would much rather somebody else jack up their life than me jack up my life in my family. I'd rather they jack up their life and, and, and I learn from it, right? I mean, th- I'm not lying. This is true. You would rather somebody else make the mistake and you get to learn from it. But this is limited too because where personal experience, there's, there's one vein of experience that we can learn from. When it's the experience of, of other people, suddenly we have all this input and the experience of other people is, is all around us. And, and what we begin to get from other people then is, well, I think and I think and I think, and I think, and how about this? I think this, I think this. And now what we're, what we're placed in is a situation where we're stuck discerning the difference between true experience and somebody's opinion or somebody's opinion of why that experience went the way it, it did. And when it comes to, to opinion, the Bible has something to say about that. In Proverbs fourteen twelve, the Bible says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, its way leads to what? You heard this? to death so there's a way i could say hey based on my experience this is what you should do but the way may lead to to death so be careful because personal experience is helpful but not flawless the experience of other people it's helpful but not flawless and and solomon in scripture he encourages by the the spirit of god speaking through solomon he encourages us that the counsel of many is a wonderful thing wisdom seeks 
wisdom from other people. Wisdom seeks counsel, and so we should seek counsel from other people, but it's not primary. It's not the main means by which we get wisdom. The other, the primary source by which Christians should be getting wisdom is from God himself. We should be getting our wisdom from God himself. We should be gleaning from the wisdom of God. And God reveals himself to us in this book. And God reveals himself to us through the person of of Jesus Christ whose life is is recorded in this book. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that he, that's Jesus, is the radiance of of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So you want to know what God looks like if he's one of us? It's, it's in Jesus. Scripture is very clear on that. And so this summer, as we look at the methods and, and the message, and we look at the methods of how are we going to sow the seed of the gospel, how are we going to make an impact in this community, there's, there's a few things we could do. I could stand up and say, well, I think this, I think this. Based on my experience, do that. Based on some mistakes, don't do that. And I could just stand up here and tell you all kinds of, I could tell you all kinds of, of stories, but it's limited because I'm human and I'm flawed. So you could, you could listen to my, my experience, but it, it, it would be flawed and, and some would be good and some would be bad input. The other option is we could fly in some great world-renowned evangelist or somebody that I've met along the way that's really good at sharing his faith and he's had a lot of success at telling people about Jesus and people responding. And we could bring him in and he could come up here and he could teach you all of his methods and everything that he's done and everything that he's learned. But the problem is, really two problems. First problem is we have no money, so we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to bring him out here anyways. We're just a new church starting. He probably wouldn't come. The, the, the other real problem is, however, is that he too is flawed and if he comes bringing his experience from the cornfields of Missouri, it's not going to translate so well in, in, in urban Boston. It's just not going to translate. And so it's limited. And fortunately, we have this, this third option that we can draw from the flawless, all-knowing, perfect God. And we can say, okay, God, what did you do when you were one of us? What did you do when you walked the earth? What were your timeless methods that we can, can follow. In fact, we should always be drawing from that in our messages. We should always be drawing from, okay, God, what did you do? What did, what did you want us to do? And, and I want us to be very leery of, of the preacher who gets up and it's constantly, I think, I've experienced, I did, I know me. I want you to be leery of that. What we really need is God thinks, God says, God knows, God records, God, man, Jesus did and, and so with that established, let's, let's begin to look at the method of, of God, man, Jesus, as recorded in Scripture, how he sowed the seed of the gospel. Seen in Jesus, the ultimate sower, the perfect sower, the one who sows the seeds of life through us, in us first, and then, and then through us, and, and whose name and whose power we sowed this seed. So this week, what I want to do, as you see in the front of your river guide, is I want to look at one particular method of Jesus, and it's the primary method of Jesus off the bat, the very first one, and I want to check it out, and it, it's described in this one word, incarnation, incarnation, and I want to check this out, and, and this word incarnation, it, it gets thrown around really most commonly just once a year in churches, once a year, and that's, that's Christmas time, and, and it's not Christmas, I know, but I guess it's appropriate because it is July, and this is the time of year that many businesses get really desperate, right, for marketing, and so they throw out their sales and their events, this Christmas in July event, really because 
because July 4th all the way through Labor Day, that span is two months, and it's the longest span in our calendar without holidays. And so these businesses get really desperate, like, what can we do? We've got to get creative. I got it. Christmas in July. And it just becomes this really transparent, stupid excuse to, to have a sale or have an event or for some people have a party. And so in that lame tradition, Christmas in July here today, we're going to look at the incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus. We, we, we need to check out this incarnation. And some of you, maybe you're thinking, what, what are you talking about? Seriously, incarnation, what is this? The, the word incarnation comes from the Latin, in caro, or the stem carn, which means flesh. So think about carnivorous or carnivore, right? In flesh. So we have this, this, this concept of in flesh. That would be that Jesus came, God came in the flesh to become one of us. He takes on humanity. And so what I want to do is I want you to get this first theologically speaking, and then I want to turn in and I want us to get this really practically speaking where we can uh, apply this. So here's the theology, and I want you to hang with me here. The theology is this. God is one. God is one. But God is in three persons. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Spirit. And, and this comes right from the very beginning. This isn't something that, that Christians made up when Jesus came and, and said, no, God is two and, and three. No, this wasn't something we made up later. This is right from the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is a great one to memorize when you're thinking through Trinity. In fact, the, the men's discipleship group is doing that right now. Genesis 1, 26 says, then God made uh, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So think about this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we have God, and then we have multiple persons. He says, us, our, our likeness. And, and Jesus gives, gives it some, some real detail. It gets really specific in Matthew chapter 28 when he gives the Great Commission. He says that we are to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the plural is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have God is three, tri, but he's also one. He's unified. So we have tri, unity, smush them together. We have Trinity. And this doctrine of the Trinity, it, though it's not outlined in Scripture, the word Trinity, it's all throughout Scripture. And, and this idea of Trinity is held by every Orthodox Christian on the planet. And in the incarnation, what we have is God the Son coming to earth, becoming flesh, becoming man, and, and he becomes obedient to the Father to take on human flesh. In fact, Genesis, or Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. So I want you to hear that. He sent forth his Son, and, and his Son had to be obedient to do what he asked him to do what he, he sent him to do. And in Philippians chapter 2.8, and we're going to look at that in a little while uh, today, Philippians chapter 2.8 says that, and being found in human form, this is Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so we have God the Son becoming man in, in this beautiful act of humility and this act of, of obedience. And, and what he didn't do is he, God the Father didn't, go and put the Heimlich, or the Heimlich, the, the full Nelson, right, on, on, on the sun and say, you better go down there right now. You better go down there and become the sun, Jesus. And, and, and he didn't do that. What happened, as we see in Scripture, is that Jesus was sent and he was obedient. He says, I'm, I'm going and I'm going I'm to do it. I will become obedient even to the point of death, death on, on the cross. He becomes a man, 
Jesus of Nazareth. Not Jesus of, of Rome, right? Not even, not even Jesus of Jerusalem, which is the holy, you know, holy city. No, he became Jesus of this little hick town called, called Nazareth. I mean, this is the holy, throne-worthy God that comes down to this little country hick town and becomes a man right there. And just let me give you a little side note so that we can further understand the doctrine of the, of the Trinity and how that even applies to us. Back in Genesis chapter 1, 26, it says, God made us in his likeness and in his image. And so we're created after the, the pre-existing God who is three yet one. And, and what I want you to see is, as it says, God made us in his likeness and that likeness. What we have in God is we have multiple persons, multiple roles. There's authority, right? God the Father sent God the Son. And there's, there's submission and there's, there's a following here. There's an order here. But yet, there's equality in that. And, and what I want to see, contrary to the, the modern feminist movement that we, we've seen over the past few decades, we're created in his likeness, but we're all created, though equal, we have different distinct roles. And so, men, that's why you're called in Scripture. We are to lead our marriages. We are to lead our families. We are called in Scripture to be the ones who, who lead the church. And so what we have is equality, but there's still leadership. And it's hard for people to wrap their minds up. How can you be equal and yet somebody's leading? It's clear. I mean, today we know that there's, there's equality yet leadership. But for some reason, there's difficulty in hearing that when it comes to the home and to the church. And, and I think the reason is because men have really, really dropped the ball, historically speaking. Or the men who think they're standing up and exercising the leadership that God calls them to. They do it in a way that God didn't, right? It's, it's very aggressive. It's here's the full Nelson. Here's, here's, here's my, my attitude, and I'm demanding. And they become very, very domineering, and they become jerks about it and, 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 and manipulative. And that's not at all what we're to be. We're to be like God, who there is leadership, there is equality, and there is this beautiful unity. And so we have the Trinity. We have God. The, the Father sends his equal who obeys God the, the Son to take on flesh, to incarnate, to become a man. So now that we have the, the basic theology of the Trinity, I think that's really important, so thanks for hanging with me. Now that we have that, what I want us to do is I want us just to, to pull back and I want us to see the magnitude of what Jesus did. We, we need to see the magnitude of what Jesus did becoming a, a man and incarnating himself. Philippians chapter 2, if you'll flip there. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to start with, with verse 1. We're going to go through uh, uh, half of the chapter. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Go ahead and flip there. And if you don't have a Bible, you can flip up your hand and, and one of the usher guys will bring you a Bible. And if you don't have one of your very own, keep that one. It's our gift to you. But while you're turning there, Philippians chapter 2, let me give you a little bit of background here. Paul's writing to the church at, at Philippi. And this is a church that Paul started. This was actually the first church that he started. So obviously this church has a really special place in Paul's heart. And, and this church is a, actually a really healthy church. It's in a good place. It's healthy. Contrary to some of the other letters that Paul writes. Paul writes Galatians. And they're really struggling with this idea that they can earn 
God's favor. They're really wrestling through that. Or how about the Corinthian church? I mean, they were, they were jacked up. They were just in a bad spot. They were cutting in line. We do communion here next week, by the way. They're cutting in line for communion. I mean, it's just awful. It was just a terrible, terrible position. They were a very unhealthy church. But this church at Philippi is, is really, really healthy. And we need to know, and I think we know this, but it applies here today too, that, that just because you're healthy, just because you, you get there, doesn't mean you're going to stay there. You're not, you're not going to always be healthy because, because naturally health, health fades. So we can run and we can, we can work out and we can get in shape. But just because you finally got in shape and you got the body you wanted, you got the heart rate you wanted, you burned the calories that you want, just because you got there doesn't mean you can say, I've arrived and I'm permanently in shape. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be really cool. But that's not how it works. You have to press on to maintain health, to, to keep health. And, and, and Paul is saying, listen, you've got to press on. You've got to continue to grow in health. And then he also is speaking from the reality that he's in prison right now. And he says, listen, I, I know that I'm in prison, but I don't want that to discourage you. I don't want that to slow your progress down. I don't want that to rip you apart in any way. And so I need to tell you this. Though you're healthy, there's some things that I, I want you to know. And I believe, I, I believe this is pretty true of us right now. I think we're at a very healthy place in, in this early history of our church but i think we need to hear this this is really important so that we can continue to grow in health we can't say we're healthy now so we'll stay where we're at you, you get this physically speaking let me just get, kind of give you an example physically speaking you've seen people who are healthy who are in shape and then something comes their way whether it's a big emotional thing or or some kind of of life change or a stressor and what happens is it leads them from their healthy state maybe to comfort food some people turn to the the bottle some people turn to the carton right the ice cream and and next thing you know slowly they start putting on the pounds and slowly their their health starts to fade and and it all kind of starts to creep in slowly and Paul saying listen this is going to be really tough for you I, I'm still here I'm still I'm still uh, a, a prisoner, but I want you to press on, and I want you to stay healthy, and I want you to keep growing. And so let's read it. Let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. With all of that said, here's what Paul says. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So this is a beautiful start to Paul's telling them to, to focus on growing and health. And, and, and we can't today spend a ton of time on these first few verses because we need to get to the last set of verses. But, but these verses really set the stage for the remainder. So verse 1, Paul says, if you have any encouragement in Christ. And this, this word if here is, is not by any means questioning the encouragement that comes from Jesus. They do have encouragement from Christ. What this word if is, it's a unique literary way of, of kind of getting them thinking about this is what is certain. You do have encouragement from Jesus. So we could take this word and we could replace it with the word since. And you could say, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ. Let's continue on as we read on. Since you have comfort from the love of God. Since you have fellowship with God and and each other. uh, And and fellowship in in the Holy Spirit. Since you have affection and and sympathy or, or love for one another. Since you have this. Since this reality is yours in Christ since you have it look at verse 2 since you have it then act like it since you have it now it's time to time to act like it and he says make my joy complete in other words listen 
I, I'm full of joy in Christ. I don't need you for joy. Paul's saying that. I love you, but I don't need you for joy. My joy is found in Christ. But he says, make my joy complete. You know what? It would really top off my joy. It would really top off my joy if you would fully receive the benefits of these gifts of God that he's, he's given you by being unified, united in your love for God, united in, in, in the common Holy Spirit inside of you, united in purpose for God's glory, for God's mission. He says, you have it in Christ. You have this. To you, he's saying, you have this, but you, you've got to use it. It's kind of like athletic capability. You know what I'm talking about? Like athletic capability. Some people just have it. You know, like it doesn't matter. I, I know it's politically correct to, to tell every child in the world, you can be whatever you want to be, right? But seriously, are we going to lie to our kids? Are we going to lie to our kids and say, buddy, you can be whatever you want to be? I don't care how many times my parents said that to me as a child. I don't care how, how many times they, they went to games to cheer me on. I don't care how many basketball camps they, they send me to. This white boy can't jump. It's not going to happen, right? It doesn't matter what they do. I'm not going to get more than a six-inch vertical. It's not going to happen, right? It just, it just can't. And I knew a guy, he's a buddy of mine. I knew a guy who, seventh grade, he was pumped to get on the basketball team. And, and he tried out, and he didn't make it. And everybody said, oh, man, it's okay. Press on, man, press on. So then we move into, we move into to eighth grade. He didn't make it again, right? And then after, after that, and I, I, never, no, I never even went there. So I, I didn't even try. White boy, right? And so eighth grade, he tried and didn't make it. And so everybody says, you know what? It's middle school. You know, you're still growing. Maybe next year in high school, you'll be, you'll be further along. Yeah, next year. Ninth grade, tries out. Tenth grade, nope. Eleventh grade, nope. Twelfth grade, somebody said, maybe they'll just let him on the team. No, didn't even get on the team. So, all, I mean, look at the six years he didn't make the, the team. And, and I'm telling you, this guy worked harder than anybody I knew in the offseason. I don't know if it's really an offseason if you never had an on-season. But he, he, he worked harder than anybody out there. He was working hard, but he never made the team because he just didn't have it. If you got it, you got it, and you got to work to get better. But if you don't have it, you're, you're just not going to have it. It's, it's kind of like on American Idol or these singing, you know. You know what I'm talking about? I love how they're really frank. Like, listen, people get up there and say, I've been, I was born to sing. And they're like, no, you weren't. You were born to do something, anything but singing, right? I love it when they're completely honest because otherwise these people have been, these people that come on the shows, they've been growing up their whole life with somebody saying, you do whatever you want to do. You can set your mind. And people being honest like, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you can do it. Somebody needs to be honest with them, right? In the same way, listen, that, that's athletic capability. And, and doesn't it kill you on the flip side, for example, with athletic capability where, where you see the guys who have the genetics? You know what I'm talking about? They have the genetics. They have what I would call the Division I build. Like they're just built for Division I football. Mom and dad gave them all the opportunity they could possibly ever get. They sent them to every camp. They played every AAU team that they could possibly play. They received all the training but what happened was they started to get lazy, and that just kills me, right? You, you've got everything you need, but you just got lazy. And what Paul is saying is, listen, you've got what it takes to be what you're called to be here, to be unified, to be impactful among yourselves and in the world. You've got it, and it's all there for you in your DNA, in, in Christ. But now you've got to use it. You've got to use it, exercise like-mindedness, exercise this love, this, this same love for each other, 
be of, of one mind, of one accord. You have all of this in Jesus. You have all of this in his spirit. And then he goes on, verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, do nothing. Can you give me that word? Nothing. Do nothing from rivalry. He's talking about rivalry within the church. Believe it or not, there's rivalry within churches. He says, Christians, listen, this is not a competition. We're not trying to see who can be the holiest. We're not trying to one-up each other. Do nothing from, from, from rivalry. Think back to the, the high school locker room again, if we can. You know, painted on my locker room wall, it said, there is no I in team. We're like, yeah, right, but there is M-E, me, right? You know, so listen, do nothing from, from rivalry. We're all on on, on the same team, we're not trying to one-up each other. And what will happen is if we do things out of rivalry, it begins to rip us apart. And if you're the person doing that, you start to become secluded and you seclude yourself. And, and we can't do that. We can't seclude ourselves. We need each other to live the way God intended us to live. So he says, do nothing from rivalry, he goes on, or conceit, which literally means empty glory. And conceit is, is our attempt to get the glory. But do we get glory? No, God says, you don't get the glory. I get the glory in the end. Everything goes well when I get the glory and not you get the glory. I mean, I can look back on my life and the times that I got the glory, things start to go really, really bad. God says, you don't get the glory. I get the glory. And so our attempts to get the glory, this, this conceit, our attempts to get the glory leaves us empty, leaves us unsatisfied. But when we get all about God getting the glory, there's satisfaction there. And so he calls it empty glory or, or conceit. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Continue on. But rather, in humility count others more significant than yourselves verse four let each of you not look out for his own interests, but also the interests of others did you catch that sounds a lot like the great commandments that are recorded in, in matthew 22 when they try to trip jesus up and they so teacher what's what's the greatest commandment he gets it right according to what they're looking for they're looking for what's written all throughout the book of deuteronomy that you should love the lord your god with everything that you have every part of your being he gives them that but then he goes on he says and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself and so it sounds like that's exactly what paul's talking about that's what he's referring to in humility count others more significant than yourself don't look out for your own interest, but the interest of others also. And so we see this, and, and I just, man, I, I just think about it. I dream about it, actually. When we, we started planting this church, beginning this church, we were dreaming about us becoming a community that could really live this out. If we could really love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, that's absolute craziness. Where we began to count people as more important than ourselves, or, or at least at least as much as we love ourselves. And so I read this again, Matthew 22 and here in Philippians 2. I'm convicted. I'm really convicted. I want you to, I want you to chew on that. And, and maybe you're thinking right now, you're thinking, okay, so Josh, I thought we were focusing on, on sharing our faith. I thought we were focusing on, on sowing seeds. So what does all this, this unity talk have to do with us sharing the gospel out there? And I want you to see that, that if we can't humbly put the needs of each other before our, ourselves in here, it's not going to happen out there. And so what, what we do out there actually starts by being practiced in, 
in here. And, and, and we need to have this unity of spirit, unity of mind, unity of love, unity of mission. What, what Paul says, you have this. You have it in your nature, in your DNA that God has given you when he gave you new life in Christ. And, and outrageous unity is what Paul is calling us to in this text here. And in order for there to be unity, there needs to be what? There needs to be humility. And so that's where incarnation comes into play. That's where Jesus becoming a man and his humility comes into play. And, and if we can't nail it down here, humility, I don't know how we're going to begin to practice it out there. If we can't do it here where God's given us clear spirit unity, then I don't know how we're going to do it out there. And Paul goes on. Where does he give us the example for this? Now he starts to talk about Jesus. He starts to say, okay, let me talk about the incarnation. You need to be humble. And now let me show you the ultimate act of humility. Remember back to the beginning of the message, I said we look to God. We look to his example in Jesus. So let's, let's look there as Paul explains to us that this is modeled in the incarnation of Jesus, taking on humanity and, and participating in the most humble acts imaginable. So now look at verses 5 and 6, and let's read this, 5 and 6. He says, have this mind that he's been talking about. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. We have it is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And and Paul begins, you can tell he kind of slows things down. He starts to get really careful with his language here because this is really important because these are some huge theological truths. And he's saying, listen, this humility, this selflessness was perfectly modeled in Jesus. And now we have to be very careful in how we word this. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, now this word form, let's be very careful, doesn't mean he's, he's kind of God or when he became a man, he was kind of God. He's the, that's not what it's saying at all. The, the word is, is morphe. It means his nature, his form, his, his essence is God. He says, though he was in the form of God, though he is God, goes on, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, let's, let's make sure we get this. This is not saying when Jesus was on this earth, he didn't think it was a big deal to, to grasp and try to... No, he was God. He made that very, very, very clear. He, he, he says, I want us to be very careful. He, he says, Jesus made it clear. But what it means is that before descending to the earth as a, a man, remember, descending to the earth, we're talking Christmas in July here, before descending, he didn't mind, it uses this word, grasped or grip, and you start to think about a grip, the hands of God, he didn't mind loosening his grip up a little bit on his right to show himself to us in all his splendor and all his glory. You know that Jesus could have come to this earth, the, the Son of God, and not come as Jesus of Nazareth, but he could have come as Jesus of Rome. He could have come as, as Jesus of, of Jerusalem. He could have come just in all this, just everybody, everybody noticed who he was, and everybody, all eyes were on him. He could have come that way, but he didn't mind loosening his, his grip on that and that right that he had to show himself that way. And, and what we need to see is that if he who had every right to hang on to that glory, if he loosened his grip, then we who have no right whatsoever to hang on to any kind of idea of personal glory and and personal self-exaltation, if we have no right to that, then we better let go. We better let go of our sinful grip on self. And it's really easy to say, oh yeah, yeah, I want to be humble. 
But now is where we start to examine ourselves by looking at Christ. Are we really humble? Do we really have a loose grip on self? Or do we actually, in all actuality, everything we do, we're looking for, for self and we have this grip on, on self. And, and this is really hard for us because we're built, I think, our, our, just by our, our flesh and our nature, we, we like to manage our identity. You know what I'm talking about? We manage our identity. And I tell you, man, like the past six years or whenever Facebook started, we can really manage our identity. Right? You can come in and like, I could go on my, I could go on my Facebook, uh, you know, identity or the, the info about myself and I could put Josh Wyatt, likes, working out, Josh Wyatt. I could join all the groups, bench pressing 350. Uh, I could join the group, group for men who squat 750 and beyond and I could, I could manage my identity. We do that. We, we like to let people think that we're something that, that we're not and, 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 and if Jesus himself can loosen his grip up on his right to come here and show us who he is and his splendor and his majesty, then we better loosen our grip up on on our identity. Stop trying to manage our identity. And this is so contrary to the self-worth movement of, of modern psychology. It's so contrary to that. But when we try to manage our identity, things start to go really really wrong but when we loosen our grip up a little bit we say god you got my identity i'll let you in your perfect timing do the exaltation when we do that i'm telling you it's incredible how he gives us this new identity in jesus who is perfect and flawless who doesn't fail us and so jesus loosened his grip so we must loosen our grip let me show you another uh, scripture you don't have to flip there i just want you to hear this first peter chapter four verse six again talking about the hand of god says humble yourself under the mighty hand of god so that catch this so that at the proper time he may exalt you things go wrong when we try to exalt ourselves and fake an identity or try to create an identity for ourselves when we try to exalt ourselves and make our identity things go wrong but when we let god do it man that's when we find fulfillment that's when we find the identity that we're supposed to find it's it's a beautiful thing so let god handle your identity, your exaltation, let go of self. And I'm telling you, you'll find that it's really, really freeing. He goes on, verse 7. He, Jesus, made himself nothing. So he loosens up his grip, and he, he, he comes down in the form where he's made himself nothing. Doesn't mean that he stopped being God. Again, Paul's using very careful language here because this is big theology. Doesn't mean he stops being God. It doesn't mean that he said, okay, for, for these 33 years, I'll just kind of be half God. No, it means that he made himself nothing. It means he, he gave up some of the status, some of the privilege of doing the things that God can clearly do. He could come and be this, this, this bright, radiant, nobody can come within 30 feet of him kind of God. He could do that, but he doesn't mind doing that. He makes himself nothing and i just want us to see i i just go slow through this because i want us to see paul wants us to see the humility of god in all of this we've got to see his humility where he takes on human nature and though he remains fully god he becomes fully man and and he understands that the the limitations that are there and and in his humility he sets for us this unprecedented example and i want us to just to kind of chronologically think through this think through now just kind of go through this image this story of, of christ with me quickly he comes to earth he comes to his creation through a virgin 
in this pretty scandalous appearing situation where people are saying, what? Call yourself a virgin? Yeah, right, he's illegitimate. He comes into this scandalous situation. On top of that, when he's born, the only immediate visitors that even come to see him are these smelly shepherds who have been hanging out with gross sheep picking bugs out of their wool. They come to see Jesus. That's it. Right, that's it immediately. And 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 I think about think about an artist. God is so creative, and this world is His creation. He spoke it into existence. It, clearly, we see in Genesis chapter one twenty six. We see through through throughout all of the New Testament. We see in John chapter one, Jesus was there at the creation, and and this is His this is His canvas. This is what He made. It's it's just this incredible creation of God. And just think about an artist who has this wonderful art gallery. And he's, he's just made this wonderful collection of art. And everybody marvels at his art. And he comes in and nobody recognizes him. Nobody says, that's cool. That's great. I've been marveling at it, but I just don't even care about who you are. That you Can you imagine that? But that's what Jesus does. He made all of this and even more humbly comes to earth. More humbly than an artist. Can you even compare? He comes to earth and, and he's got just shepherds showing up to, to visit him immediately. And it's just incredible that on top of this, he comes to earth, and on top of this, there's no hotel for the creator king. That he has to go to a barn. And he has to be laid in a feeding trough for animals. I mean, we don't, we don't really, you know, the manger is this cute image for us today. But the man, and we wrap it in gold and have these beautiful little manger scenes, nativity scenes. No, it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was disgusting. Animal drool. It was just disgusting. This is what they fed out of, and they put him in that. He begins to grow up, and he begins to work alongside of his earthly adopted father, Joseph, right, who was a carpenter. Jesus becomes this carpenter, manual, working with his hands, manual labor for the creator of the world. Just kinda, I don't know if you've ever pictured this. I was thinking through this this week. Okay, this is God who spoke things into his existence, and now he's actually sanding things down and and. and chiseling and and hand, i mean manual labor with his hands now joseph would have really loved it if he said okay uh jesus we have a, a chair order for 20 and jesus says i got you let there be chair let there be chair let there be chair let there be. i mean that would be really convenient but he didn't he said i'm gonna work with my hands manual labor i mean it's just incredible what what he does and 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 that's nothing though compared to what goes on after that then he begins this earthly ministry only to be rejected in his home town can you imagine he's like of all towns i could have come to your town to give you great historical recognition that you had the son of god come to your town to nazareth and you're gonna you're gonna reject me i'm I'm putting this hick town on the map and you're gonna reject me are you kidding me he gets rejected in his own town and it's just unbelievable it goes on though that he begins to associate to call to follow him not the, the elite students of, of that day. He begins to call some rough around the edges type of, of men to follow him. He spends his days with highly contagious, sick people. I mean, really sick people that were so extremely sick that the culture said we can't get around them. We'll catch it. And they, they added into their, 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 their laws this un- uncleanliness that we've we got to stay away from, from them. It gets even more controversial when, 
when he starts to spend time with, with ladies that, that had really bad backgrounds that nobody else would associate with them. And he saw their need for not the love that they're seeking in, in multiple partners and men. He saw their need for real, authentic God love. And so he spends time with them and he rubs shoulders with all kinds of social outcasts. This is our God coming down as a man. It goes on. Look at verse 8 now, Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, his humility, it doesn't even stop there. He goes so far as to die a human death. This is the source of life, choosing to die a human death. And then to add emphasis, he he says he doesn't just die a human death, the giver of life. He goes on, even death on a cross. So he could have died a human death and we still would have been blown away. But he goes to the, the most brutal death that a person could possibly die. This perfectly crafted execution model of, of, of the Roman crucifixion. He dies that kind of death. And I just want you to understand the humility of Christ. And what is mind-boggling to me is that this isn't begrudging humility. This isn't like, oh my goodness, I've got to hang out with these disgusting humans. It's, disgusting and then they 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 talk about me behind my back they question me and they're just jerks to me and they they laugh at me and they they plot to kill me and i gotta hang out with these gross humans it wasn't begrudging humility at all and in, in, in fact hebrews chapter 12 2 says for the joy set before him he marches towards the cross so it was his joy to come and to become one of us and then to go to to the cross it was his joy to incarnate among us and this is incredible incredible so let's let this apply to us let's let it apply to us this is so so huge this is this is incredible i just it, it's mind-boggling for me as we think about our lord we think about his example how do we sow how do we sow seed how do we follow this incarnation of of jesus well first we do so by humbly putting the needs of other people before ourselves god did it perfectly so we're called to do it and it begins in here that we would do that in here and we've got all the stuff that he 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 needs to give us he gave it to us and the holy spirit unity and the mission is we're unified in mission we're unified in love and affection he's given us all of that would begin in here and then it translates out there which will require us to loosen our grip on self and which will require us to stop trying to make an identity for ourselves and say, God, you, you make my identity. You do what you need to do, which then will lead to putting the interest of others before ourselves, which I believe will really make us more effective sowers. If Christians would stop being so self-consumed in here, people see that and they say, I don't want any of that. That's why in, in, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays his dying wish prayer, his high priestly prayer. He says, I pray that they might be one so that the world would believe that you sent me. And so if we can be unified, that will cause the world to, to want that, to want Jesus, to want him and believe that, that he was sent from God. But it requires us to be humble and, and to be one. So I really believe that if we would be humble, we would practice this incarnational, humble, relational, rubbing shoulders with people that nobody else wants to rub shoulders with kind of ministry, we would be unbelievably effective it's all about us becoming effective sowers that's why we're looking at at this 
this concept of incarnation. As we think about sowers, we think about planters. As I said last week, I just want us to see as we're planting seed of the gospel in people's lives, we can't just be this prideful, I'm just going to kind of throw out seed. But we need to be like Christ where he says, I'm not just going to throw out seed, but I'm going to get down and I'm going to get dirty and I'm, I'm going to actually work the soil. I'm going to get my hands messy and I'm going to be among the soil. I'm going I'm to see it. I'm going to pull weeds. I'm going to pull rock and I'm going to get dirty with these people because I know that's how we can be most effective. And I want that to be us, that we will be not a prideful group of people, that we will not be self-righteous and think that we, we have this righteousness that comes from ourselves as, as Ben read earlier and as we sing about. We don't have that. So there's no reason for us to say, I'm going to stay separate, but I'm going to get in there. I'm going to be in the culture. I'm not going to be of the world. I'm going to be in the culture. And I'm going to get dirty and I'm going to make a difference in the culture. And I'm going to really stir up this soil in prayer, in relational, incarnational sowing, of the seed. That was the example of Christ. And that's what he left for us. And man, I just pray that we would do this kind of humble work so that we could become effective sowers of the seed. Can we pray? God, we thank you so much for the obedience of your son Jesus who would come to this earth, who would humble himself to become one of us, to incarnate among us. And to be obedient, not just as a good example, but be obedient to death, even death, on the most brutal crucifixion, uh, execution tool out there, the cross. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, We follow that incarnational example. We'd be willing to, to rub shoulders with the people who are difficult, maybe the people who are, are prideful among us at work, that nobody else wants to talk to, people slowly distance themselves and they're hard to be around, that we would be willing to rub shoulders with, with people that, that aren't going to give us the glory we want because they're, maybe they're negative, maybe they're selfish people. Or may we loosen our grip on self and rub shoulders with people that have nothing to give us back because that's what you did. God, I pray that we would be a humble, incarnational, relational, selfless, putting the needs of, of others before ourselves type of people. And Lord, we just thank you that we can, we can discuss this early on in our history as a church. And Lord, I pray that it would shape who we become. Lord, I pray that, that as we are unified, as you prayed in John chapter 17, as we are unified, that the world would believe that God sent you, your son. Thank you, Father. We love you. And we just pray that this would stir us up. Lord, I pray that if we need to change that you would convict us as to how we need to change. If there's anybody in here, God, who doesn't know Christ, hasn't placed faith in that awesome Christ that we talked about, Lord, that they would do so today. They would say, I need you. I need that life that you give. I need that death that you died to pay my price. I I trust in you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would do a great work among us. We love you and we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.